Well, today we're uh, continuing in our series in the book of James uh, that we've called Louder Than Words, and we come to James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Uh, So if you want to go ahead and turn there and hold your place, uh, we will look at that text here in just a minute. We'll also put it on the video screen uh, behind me. By the way, I think for those of you who have been concerned that you should be able to read your Bible today because we did increase the lighting in the auditorium. So, hope you, hope you, hope you recognize that and uh, that now we have reached the place of perfection with auditorium lighting. So, all right. Well, uh, this section of James, verse 13, begins with a question that I've used as the title of today's sermon, the question, who is wise? And I, I think that if you put this question to many people in our culture, they would hear something a little different. I, I think it's not based on, you know, a great deal of research or anything, but just kind of my hunch, but I think that many people would hear something like this, who is intelligent? Uh, Who is well-educated? Who is financially uh, successful? And so I think that there's a tendency in our culture to look at people who have succeeded financially and see them as wise, to look at people who have significant career achievements and see them as wise. Uh, Maybe we look at people who we know have a lot of knowledge, they've learned a lot, they possess a lot of information, and we see them as wise. The reality is that sometimes they are, and sometimes they are not. On the other hand, we often look at people who we don't perceive as being highly intelligent, uh, aren't necessarily very well educated, uh, aren't financially successful, and because of these things that they aren't, we struggle to ascribe wisdom to these folks. Now, it can be true that such a person is not wise, but sometimes such people are incredibly wise, at least as God sees things, at least as the Bible sees it. Even though they don't possess any of these, these qualities, any of these things that the culture would, would deem to mark success uh, or, or wisdom uh, understood in that, uh, that way as success, intelligence, um, education. Today our text deals with two kinds of wisdom. It tells us first about worldly wisdom, worldly wisdom. And in referring to this kind of wisdom in James 3.15, it's placed in quotes, indicating that this type of wisdom really is just wisdom so-called. It isn't actually wisdom at all. And the next kind of wisdom it tells us about is godly wisdom. Depending on the translation of the Bible you read out of, it could show up as heavenly wisdom or wisdom from above. So natural intelligence, level of education, career and financial success really have very little, I I don't think we'd be pressing it too far to say, really have nothing to do with true wisdom, with godly wisdom. Someone may have all of those things and not be wise as God counts it. And someone may have none of those things and be extremely wise as God counts it. So what I want to do today is let's read our text and then we're going to see the characteristics and the results of worldly wisdom. Then we're going to see the characteristics and results of godly wisdom. 
We're going to take what we find and apply it to this question, who is wise? And then finally, we're going to engage a few questions for personal application to to help us gauge if we are living lives marked by godly wisdom or if we are living lives that are marked by worldly wisdom. So here's how our text uh, reads. This is from the NIV. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Uh, I also want to read the text today from the New Living Translation. Uh, This is a translation that I think is extremely helpful for personal devotion times. It it really, um, I think, helps to illuminate uh, things some ways, uh, sometimes in ways that are more easy for us to understand. And I think it does that here as well. It'll read very close, but there are a couple of, a couple of little differences. If you're wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with a humility that comes from wisdom. But if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every kind of evil. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It is also peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and good deeds. It shows no favoritism. And is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. So let's see first from these verses the characteristics and the results of worldly wisdom. James uh, verse 14 identifies bitter envy and selfish ambition as characteristics of worldly wisdom. And then the second part of verse 14, I I think, is a little challenging to understand. In the NIV, it read, do not boast about it or deny the truth. And this is one of the places where I think the NLT kind of helps us to understand it a bit better. It says, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. It seems to me that what James has in view here are folks who are representing themselves as being wise, but in reality, they're motivated by selfish ambition which is about as far as you can get from acting with godly wisdom. And they are covering up the truth about themselves by boasting in their supposed wisdom, representing themselves as wise, and lying about their true uh, motivations. And so I think we see in our text these characteristics of worldly wisdom. They are bitter envy, self-seeking, boasting, and lying. A person can be wise in, in uh, many of the ways that we're inclined to count a person as wise and in reality have all of these characteristics. 
And I think of these four characteristics of those operating accordingly to, uh, according to worldly wisdom, the one, one of them encompasses all of the others. And I think it's selfish ambition or self-seeking. It kind of contains all of those. You know, this is the, the natural, the fallen condition of mankind, self-seeking, selfish ambition. And we even have commonly known phrases to communicate this. We don't, we don't connect the dots that this is what it is, but, but it is. Things like look out for number one. Things like be true to yourself. I read lots of advice. Well, let me, let me correct that. I occasionally look at advice columns. <laughs> I don't want to give you the wrong impression. I occasionally look at advice columns. And it's almost always about you know, cutting out relationships that no longer serve your needs. And of course, there's, there's a kernel of truth in there, and there's a time when that's appropriate. Uh, but often we have kind of an itchy trigger finger on those uh, kind of things. It's, it's all about us. It's all about us. Look out for number one. Be true to yourself. Here are a couple of thoughts that I found from some uh, Bible study sources that I really appreciate on this verse 14. William MacDonald, a Bible commentator that I really like, says this, the envious person's passion in life is to advance his own interest. His mind is already made up. His opinions are not subject to change. He is unforgiving and vindictive. Worldly wisdom. The ESV study Bible says in verse 14, selfish ambition is the willingness to split the group in order to achieve personal power and prestige. So there's no appreciation for what's best for the whole. It's always just what's best for me, worldly wisdom. Everything for the worldly wise person is subordinate to their own personal best interest, at least their perception of what is in their personal best interest. If something is not perceived as convenient, if someone isn't equally concerned with them as they are concerned with them, The worldly wise person will be done with anyone or anything that does not exactly fit their perception of how things ought to go for them. They have their own reality that they have created. They have placed themselves at the center of everything. Their reputation and their prestige must be guarded at any cost, even if, as verse 14 says, even if lying is necessary. A person can be highly intelligent, well-educated, financially successful, be looked at as someone who is wise by many people, but in reality be living according to this kind of worldly wisdom, which is not wisdom at all. And James has strong words about worldly wisdom. He writes in verse 15, such wisdom does not come down from heaven But it is earthly, it is unspiritual, it is demonic. This envious, lying, self-seeking way of living is first of all earthly. It doesn't come from heaven. Its origination point is the earth, which is fallen, not as it was intended to be. It is next unspiritual, or another word that applies here is sensual. It isn't from the fruit of the Spirit, rather it comes from man's lower nature. It comes from our lower base nature. 
And finally, as if James didn't hit us hard enough with those two words, he goes on to say that living by this so-called wisdom is actually demonic. Demonic. Envy, selfish ambition, boasting, lying. It's demonic. It stoops to the actions that resemble the behavior of demons rather than the behavior of men, especially Men who say they are redeemed. Matthew Henry writes this, Worldly wisdom is devilish. And therefore those who are lifted up with such wisdom as this must fall into the condemnation of the devil. And then we see what the results of worldly wisdom are in verse 16. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. The result of wisdom that isn't really wisdom, the result of this wisdom from below is disorder, confusion, and evil of every kind. Now, this is the point where I need to point out something to us. I need to remind us of something. James is writing to Christians. He's not writing to people out there. He is writing to Christians, the body of Christ, those who name the name of Jesus, those who have been saved. And the context of his writing is that he's been talking about a number of things that can do damage to the body of Christ. Things like showing favoritism, which we talked about a few weeks ago. Things like the inability to tame unruly tongues. Jarrell talked about, unruly speech, things like being quick to become angry. James is writing these things evidently because worldly wisdom was operating within the church and it is bringing into the church disorder, confusion, and evil of every kind. So I have a few questions for us to consider. Is worldly, don't, don't laugh when I ask you this one. Is worldly wisdom at work in churches today? Hold your laughter. It's a rhetorical question, yes. Is worldly wisdom causing disorder and confusion in the church? Is worldly wisdom still bringing evil of all kinds into the church? The answers are yes, yes, and yes. And can I just speak real honestly for a minute? Thank you, Adele. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. One of the most difficult things I have found about being a pastor, because I I haven't always been a pastor. One of the most difficult things I've found, and it's not unique to me, I hear it from many, many pastors. And it's very disappointing. And it is this. Many people love me. That's not the problem. I'm getting ready to the problem. (laughs) Many people love me as long as I affirm them. As long as I assure them they're doing well. They pat me on the back when I preach about the sins they're not committing. They commend me for things like speaking the truth 
and telling it like it is. Up until the point that I have to speak the truth to them. Say something difficult to them. And here's my experience. And I understand I, I'm sure I don't do these things perfectly. But it doesn't matter how kindly I try to say it. It doesn't matter how gently I try to say it. The mere fact that I said something, almost always, only when it absolutely could not be avoided. You've never met a more conflict-adverse person than this guy right here. And so if I've said something, it's because it could not be avoided. I cannot fulfill my role as a pastor and not say something. Reluctantly. Hate it. Gotta do it. No matter all of that, I immediately become unloving, uncaring, judgmental, harsh, intrusive, sticking my nose in where it doesn't belong, just an all-around horrible person and a big, ugly jerk. I thought you'd laugh at that, but I guess it was too heartfelt. You didn't didn't think you could laugh. (laughs) So... And it isn't just me. And it isn't just lead pastors. But people leading in all capacities within churches experience the same thing. Can I say this? Well, I can. Yes, I'm going to. (laughs) If you can never receive correction from anyone about anything, you are living according to worldly wisdom... You are bringing disorder and confusion and various kinds of evil into the church. And James says what you are doing is earthly, sensual, and demonic. James tells us about worldly wisdom. And then he goes on and he gives us the characteristics and the results of godly wisdom, wisdom from above, heavenly wisdom. Verse 17 begins this way, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. And then he goes on and gives us the following characteristics of the person who operates according to godly wisdom. Peace-loving, considerate, submissive, the NLT says willing to yield to others, full of mercy, full of good fruit, impartial, sincere. So godly wisdom is pure. It's clean, it's innocent, it's, it's perfect. Godly wisdom is peaceable or peace-loving. Uh, those who possess and live according to godly wisdom are those who care about maintaining peace. They, they care about maintaining unity. They are very concerned at being at one with everybody. Godly wisdom is considerate. Some translations say gentle. It's gentle. And this is closely related with being patient. In Titus 3, 2, in a number of translations, Paul compares the quality of being gentle with not being a brawler or being someone who really tries to avoid fighting. You know, the person operating according to godly wisdom isn't always itching to fight about things. They're just not. Do you sense sometimes when you're just out in the culture that 
There's just a lot of people that are just itching to fight about things. My goodness, it's, it's alarming the number of people that seem like, I, I mean, just the wrong word that you didn't even mean. You, like you didn't know they would take it that way and they're ready to fight. And sadly, there are more people than there should be just like that in churches. Godly wisdom is submissive or willing to yield. The, the Greek word that gets translated as submissive or willing to yield means literally easy to be entreated. Easy to be entreated. Other translations have things like open to reason, easily persuaded, ready to be convinced. And the underlying idea to this, it seems to me, is that of openness to being led, openness to being lovingly challenged, openness to considering that your way isn't always the only way, and sometimes it isn't even the right way, even when you really, really, really think that it is. Godly wisdom is full of mercy. It it doesn't want to come down hard on people who have messed up and gotten involved in sin or offended, but rather it's merciful as God has been merciful to us. Godly wisdom is full of good fruit. Those living lives marked by godly wisdom have the fruit of the Spirit evident in their lives. You know, those things like love, joy, and peace. And here's one that challenges us. They bring forth much fruit, which is supposed to be just what happens from being connected to Jesus. We bring forth much fruit. Godly wisdom is impartial. We talked about this a few weeks ago. It looks at everyone as Christ does. People aren't preferred one over the other. Everyone is seen as being equal before God. And godly wisdom is sincere. This is closely related to to being pure. It isn't hypocritical. It doesn't boast. It doesn't put on a false front. It doesn't wear a mask. It doesn't just look like godly wisdom on the surface, but it runs deep into the heart of the person. It really is who they are and how they are living. These are the characteristics of godly wisdom. Followers of Jesus who are truly wise will see some of these characteristics in their lives and hopefully growing in their lives the longer that they walk with Jesus Christ. Now, it'd take more time than we have today to cover all of these characteristics in in detail. So I want to focus for just a minute on the characteristic that will agitate you the most, the characteristic of submissive, being submissive or willing to yield. You know, the Bible says a lot more about this than we might realize, and it says a lot more about this than we probably prefer. We're all clear that the Bible teaches from beginning to end that Christians are to submit to God. But do you know the Bible also teaches very clearly that we are to submit to one another? And it also teaches very clearly that we are to submit to leaders. Ephesians 5.21 is sometimes understood to be speaking only to Christian households and the relationship between husbands and wives. But I believe it's better to see Ephesians 5.21 as belonging with the previous section, uh, which deals in general with instructions on Christian living And then to see 522 as transitioning to talking about the relationship between husbands and wives. Here's what 521 says. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
Submit to one another. Do you realize that a Christian obligation is a willingness to submit to one another? And some of you I've already lost. That's all I had to say, and you're already troubled in your spirit. But you should not be. You absolutely should not be. If you find yourself troubled right now, you know that you need to receive what I'm saying. A Christian obligation is to submit to one another. This means that none of us are above being accountable to one another. We're not above being accountable. If you are concerned about my life, honestly, legitimately concerned, I have to be open to considering your concern. I have to be. If I am concerned about your life, or another brother or sister here in the church is concerned about your life, you need to be open to hearing their concern. For Christians within a local body of Christ, within a local church, mind your own business is not an appropriate response to a heartfelt expression of concern. It's just not. Now, of course, there are those occasional people who see it as their mission in life to root out every little insignificant quirk about you and make it conform to their preferences. And that is not what we're talking about. That is not what is in view. We are not giving license in the church to the hypercritical to unleash their powers of observation on everyone else in the church. If you hear that, you've heard me wrong. That is not what I am saying. But heartfelt, sincere, seriously considered and prayed about, and I would even add, reluctantly approached concerns. We are absolutely responsible to be open to such things. To submit to one another, understanding God placed us in this body together to help each other, to become the people that he wants us to be. And as much as some wish it wasn't so, the Bible is very clear about the importance of submitting to leaders within the church. Now, now let me be clear here so that I'm not accused of being self-serving. What we are about to read, I believe, applies to all leaders within the church, not just pastors, senior pastors, lead pastors. And there are other places we could look to in Scripture that show the importance of submitting to leadership, but here's the most well-known, and it's pretty clear. Hebrews 13, 17 says this, Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Can I tell you that I wish that verse was in the book of James so I could spend an entire week on it in this series? And I would title it something like this. You have a responsibility to make my job joyful. (laughs) And you say, I thought I was. Oh, okay.
Submit to leaders because they keep watch over you. Leaders within the church have a responsibility to God. The responsibility comes from God and the responsibility is to God. And they have a responsibility to you to watch out for you. To sound the alarm if something doesn't seem right. To challenge you to back away from things that are damaging to your spiritual growth. To call you to repent. If a pattern of sin emerges in your life. To warn you when patterns of behavior indicate that there is reason for concern. If you are a member here. If, if you're visiting with us, this, you know, this Right now, I'm saying if you're a member here, when you became a member, here's one of the things you did, and we told you, but maybe you didn't realize. (laughs) You submitted yourself to the leadership of this church, and you committed yourself to the expectations that are placed on members here. Let me explain expectations of members in a way that maybe we haven't done well at explaining Expectations that we place on our members are honestly not because we like to see if we can make people do things. We have learned we can't (laughs) make you do things. We've learned that. The expectations are in place because we are thoroughly convinced that these expectations serve your spiritual growth. They serve your relationship with God to strengthen it, to make it better. They serve your relationship with other people. And they ultimately, here's what we believe. You can disagree, but but this is the motivation. They ultimately serve to increase the quality of your life. They serve to increase your peace of mind. They ultimately serve, even though sometimes it's a little counterintuitive... I'll admit, sometimes it's a little counterintuitive, but they ultimately serve your joy. Your joy. And let me go a step further. This admonition to be willing to yield, to submit to leaders, I believe it extends to when a leader that you're serving under asks something of you. And so if a leader asks something of you in the, in the course of doing ministry together, and it rubs up against your preferences... I encourage you, you need to be willing to yield. You need to be willing to submit. Sure, if you disagree, say so. Ask why. Ask for an explanation. But if after saying your piece, the leader still asks for things to be done the way they requested, do it. Don't receive instruction and then ignore it because you wouldn't have done it the same way. Do you know what happens when, when that is at work in churches? What is sown is disorder and confusion. It's motivated. There's no other way around this. It is motivated by a self-seeking attitude that James says is earthly, sensual, and that other word, demonic. You say, Brian, but what if I strongly disagree? Here's the advice I have for you. Ask yourself three questions. Is what the leader is asking of me unbiblical? 
Is what the leader is asking of me immoral? Is what the leader is asking of me unethical? If the, question, if the answer to those questions is no, then you can be almost certain that this is an area that you should yield on. If you believe the answer to those questions is yes, or there is some really compelling reason that I haven't thought of why you feel you need to, then press your case, uh, perhaps even asking for mediation from another leader, including a pastor or elder, or if needed, the elders together. But friends, here's what I want to impress upon us. I, I hope uh, you're receiving this in the way I intend it. I want to impress upon us that submitting, yielding to leadership within the church is a bigger deal than most Christians think it is. It really is. And great damage is done to the body of Christ when everyone just ignores their responsibility to follow leaders whenever a leader's decision doesn't suit their personal preference or talks negatively about every decision a leader makes that isn't exactly the decision they would have made. Now, if you have been in churches in the past where such messages were uh, preached about only when something was actively going on in the church, uh, let me put a disclaimer here. I don't really know of this happening right now. Okay, So I'm not up here beating anybody over the head. I just want to be clear about that. But James led us to this place, so I thought we would talk about it. And I thought if we... Well, here's the other thing I always realize. I don't know what I don't know. So if it does apply, receive it. But if it doesn't apply right now, then let's put this in the old memory bank. And uh, when, when we do need to pull it out, let's pull it out. So here's the thing. These kind of things are not pleasing to God. These kind of self-seeking attitudes within the church bring confusion and disorder and they destroy unity. So we are called to submit to each other and we're called to submit to leaders. Not doing so is indicative of living according to worldly wisdom. Doing so is indicative that uh, our life... Uh, I'm sorry, I messed that up. When we uh, live... Forget that, I messed that up. Let's go on. <laughs> Sometimes you just can't recover. Have you, have you ever had that happen? And trying to recover makes it worse. So here we go. Verse 18 tells us what the outcome of employing godly wisdom in our lives and churches. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. The outcome of employing godly wisdom. So those who are concerned with being at one with their brothers and sisters in Christ, those who are not self-serving, those who are pure and sincere, will plant peace everywhere they are and in any way they can, and the result is there, there is a great harvest of righteousness. Good things result in their own life, in the life of the church, and here's an important one, in the lives of people who we are called to reach, but we have not yet reached. Now, here's something I'm thankful for. God is so gracious that he works through his church even when too many are living according to worldly wisdom, including leaders in the church. I don't exempt any of us who are leaders. We, we sometimes live according to worldly wisdom. So God is gracious. He, he works through that. But the ground for a harvest of righteousness is much more fertile and much more can be accomplished where godly wisdom is embraced and lived out. 
Let me give you a very simple illustration that's a pretty, pretty common uh, reference point uh, in churches. And this has never been an issue here. Churches that fight over the color of the carpet almost never experience a great harvest of righteousness. Okay? Churches where everyone is an authority to themselves and everybody is just looking to, to get their way. Everyone gives lip service to godly wisdom but lives according to worldly wisdom. Those churches do not experience a harvest of righteousness. And so our text asks, who is wise and understanding among you? Sermon title asks, who is wise? Summarizing all that James says in these few verses, I think the answer is something like this. The truly wise person is the one who manifests the life of Jesus Christ. The truly wise person is the one in whom the fruit of the Spirit is evident. The truly wise person is the one who has the life of Christ, the fruit of the Spirit, so active in their lives that they no longer live according to selfish ambition. And then I think we go on and say the truly wise person is the one who thinks well, talks well, but also actually lives well. They actually live it out. That's what this series of of James is all about, the person who actually does what they think and what they say. William MacDonald writes this, James does not, think of the wisdom, uh, does not think of the wise in terms of how much knowledge a man has, but how he lives his life from day to day. It isn't the possession of knowledge, but the proper application of it that counts. And here's one of the really interesting things that happen. Many people in the church think the right things. They, they agree with everything James has written. They agree about what constitutes worldly wisdom. They agree about what constitutes godly wisdom. And many people say the right things. They repeat what James has said. They they tell others. This is worldly wisdom. This is godly wisdom. But many people who agree and even say the right things don't actually live out the right things in their own lives. And so James says it isn't really wisdom when you just think it and say it. It's only really wisdom when you actually do what is right, when you actually do the will of God. So what about you? What about you? Let's just bring this down to the individual level. I ask each and every one of you here today to just contemplate where you are personally. Are you counted among those who are living by the wisdom from below, which is not wisdom at all, Or are you among those who are living according to the wisdom from above, heavenly wisdom, godly wisdom? So here are just a few questions for personal application. They're on your outline. You can take them with you. You can engage with those this week if you would like. Do I serve the Lord without caring who gets the credit? You know, Rick Warren wrote the... uh, the highest-selling book in history, I believe, other than the, the Bible. And he opened this best-selling book in history with these famous words, it's not about you. Do you believe that? Or is it really about you? And here's the paradox. The more you live like it's not about you, the better off you are. It's an amazing thing. Next question, am I jealous and resentful? 
Do I, or do I get joy out of seeing others do well? Do I get joy out of the group doing well, whether or not I personally get recognized? Am I a peacemaker or a troublemaker? Do I hear news and, and get giddy with excitement? Bad news. And I'm giddy with excitement. Can't wait to get to the next person and share it. Or do I find a way to say, you know what, that sounds like that could be really damaging if we keep talking more about that. I'm going to try to find a way to, to kind of circle the wagons here and contain this and get only the people who are directly involved, engaged in working this out. Are we, are we peacemakers or are we troublemakers? Am I willing to yield to my brothers and sisters? Am I willing to yield to leaders? Or do I always have to have my own way? Do I only get along with someone when they agree with me 100% of the time? And here's a big one. Am I merciful? Do I find joy in extending mercy to others? Or do I prefer justice for everyone else and mercy for myself? If you want a harvest of righteousness in your own life, in the life of this church, and in the lives of people we have not yet reached, then I appeal to you today to reject worldly wisdom and embrace the wisdom from above and allow the Holy Spirit to empower you to live the life of Christ, to live a life that truly evidences the fruit of God's Spirit. Why don't you stand?